you would turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24, and hear the reading of God's word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord that is given by God because he loves us. You may be seated. And it wasn't bad standing up this morning. See, a short. We're, we're now going back to the book of Romans, where we're going to be there for actually many months, and they will be short. Yeah, it might be many years. You never know. We'll, we'll see what the Lord does in and through this. All I know is that um, I explained to Evie, I think it would hit Friday of this week, and I said, I think my head's about to explode with just the amount of theology and information you glean from this particular letter, what I, I think most scholars and commentators call Paul's magnum opus. And so I don't mind having you stand when it's only four short verses. It's pretty quick. Even if I read slowly, it's pretty quick, but awful meaty. Let's review a little bit where we've come in terms of the book of Romans, as we return to uh, our study of it. It's Paul's magnum opus that's written to the church at Rome, which is in the center of the Roman Empire. So it's the capital city. Now, why did Paul write this? Well, the occasion of his writing was he wanted to expand his missionary uh, ventures, his missionary journeys, and he wanted to go westward and Later in the book of Romans, you read he wanted to go all the way to Spain. You know, it's very easy for us to think that Paul was first and foremost a theologian, but at his heart, Paul was an evangelist. He was a missionary. You get to places like Romans chapter 9, and he shares his evangelist's heart when he says, and, and I don't, this to me is a dangerous prayer. He's even praying that his own name would be cursed and cut off from the book of, the, of life for the sake of his own Jewish brethren that they may know Christ. When was the last time you prayed for a family member or neighbor like that? But that's Paul's heart. He's not just about doctrine and theology. He is on a missionary venture, and he wanted to go to Spain, which was west of Rome. And so to do that, his home base up to this point was the city of Antioch and the church at Antioch. Wanting to travel, he wanted to change his home base. So the occasion of writing this letter was basically to share with the Church of Rome, will you take me? Will you have me? Will you let your church be my home base? And here's what I'm all about. So he's saying, here's my heart and here's my passion. And as we learned in the introduction, what is Paul's passion? Well, he says right away in verse 1 of chapter 1, it's to be set apart for the gospel of God. And in the thesis of his letter... He believes that the gospel is actually the very expression of the power of God. For he says, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Apparently, the gospel reveals the very justice, the very righteousness of God. And then after Paul's introduction, which was the first 17 verses, he then begins what I'll call Act 1 of his letter which if you're outlining, it would be chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3 and verse 20. That's what we covered kind of through the winter months, which ended with the very 
dour news and the dire situation that by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. In other words, as one commentator put it, the saving promises of God have not been fulfilled via keeping the law since both Jews and Gentiles fall short of the glory of God. Both groups have replicated the sin of Adam in their own history. Nonetheless, God has fulfilled his saving promises through the death of Jesus Christ. And so Act 1 was all about the bad news. All people, the human condition, we're all in the same boat. Helpless, powerless, hopeless. This is the human condition. I'll illustrate it this way, picture it this way. It's kind of like we see in many superhero movies where the situation looks utterly, utterly hopeless. I know many of us these days, maybe not in this service, I don't know, second service might be a little different, are into the Avengers. I guess Avengers is kind of the big deal right now. I haven't gone out and seen Avengers Endgame yet. Maybe you haven't either. I'm looking at the crowd. Uh, But I'm going to go old school with this illustration. And I bet you you might remember this. Anybody remember the old Batman TV show? Now I'm talking the old TV show from the 60s. That's what I grew up on. And I used to love the dynamic duo. Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder. Now, if you remember, every situation in terms of them, okay, would end on kind of this cliffhanger. They're held captive. They're going to die. What's going to happen? Their situation is dour, hopeless, powerless, helpless. And then all of a sudden, something happens. Somebody swoops in. There's a fight, and this was always my favorite scene as a six-year-old boy, when they would basically, remember this? The TV would go, boom, bam, kapow, kablooey, and they would have all these, I always used to love those things. They would swoop in, Batman and Robin would get in this fight, they'd be saved, and the situation is resolved. The day would be saved. Now look at this, act one is, about the bad news. Here's the human condition. You're held captive to sin. Notice what verse 20 says. No human being will be made right, but in God's sight will be justified in God's sight. Who will save the day? And then Act 2, verse 21, the very first words that we read begin with the words, but now. Now I'm being fairly dramatic because that's what Paul intends by this. He has just said, we're in a hopeless situation. But he is intentionally changing the mood, and he wants you to feel it. He wants those listening to the letter to the Romans to be on the edge of their seat. Who's going to save the day? Someone has to swoop in. It's called divine intervention. But what will divine intervention look like? Is divine intervention, I think so often like what we think, oh, I'm in trouble in this circumstance, I'm in dire help, and God will help my circumstance get better? That may be divine providence, and that may be divine intervention, but is that the divine intervention that we really need? Is that the divine intervention that God, out of his love and mercy and grace and kindness, provides for us? See, what does divine intervention look like? It looks like God coming down in the person of Jesus Christ and delivering a divine bam, kabow, kaplooey. 
to sin and death and hell and Satan and the forces that held us captive. He did so in the form of the doctrine known as justification by faith in what commentators call the heart of the epistle. Scholars and commentators look at these verses and they say, here's the heart of the epistle to the Romans. And this morning we're going to look at it from two perspectives. What does divine intervention look like? We're going to look at it from the perspective of, number one, the revelation of divine intervention, and two, the result of divine intervention. First, the revelation of divine intervention. But now the righteousness of God, notice these next words, has been manifested. Here's the revelation of it. Something was hidden. The curtain was closed. There were hints to what's behind the curtain because it says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So the Old Testament is saying it's coming. They bear witness to it. They speak about it. But now the curtains are blown wide open and it's on display. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. See, let's ask this question, what are we aiming for in our Christian life and in the church? PCA pastor Scotty Smith, I loved how he put it, he says, what we're aiming for is the four-corner intersection of gospel beauty, spirit renewal, compassionate orthodoxy, and robust worship. And where does that come from? See, we're only going to live out of this four-corner intersection to the degree that we are gripped by our universal need of the gospel and seeing what God has doing when he swooped in in the person of Jesus Christ. See, we need to understand the context of the letter as a whole. So, I need to return again to the bad news. So bear with me for a second, okay? Yes, this is the good news part of the letter, but you only understand the good news to the degree that you feel and are gripped by the bad news. See, if you don't see yourself captive, that's why I had Rick read the verses out of Isaiah as part of our confession. If you don't see that even your best performance, your best religious duties, your righteous deeds, the best that you could love God and love somebody, the very best that you could commend yourself and offer yourself to God is like a polluted garment. And I won't go into what that really is in the Hebrew. But that's the best. You won't feel the force and be galvanized and be thunderstruck by the reality of God in Christ has swooped down to provide for you what you could never provide for yourself. And if you don't have gospel beauty and spirit renewal and compassionate orthodoxy and robust worship in your life, it is to the degree that to that degree you don't understand the saving righteousness of God given to you as a gift. So let me review the context and the bad news once again. Because Romans 1, verses 18 to 20, taught us our universal need of the gospel. Let me illustrate this by way of a biblical illustration. It's much like the case of Nicodemus when he came to Jesus at night back in John chapter 3. Remember that? He wanted to know, he was seeking to know who Jesus was, what he's all about. And John 3 begins with the words of Nicodemus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And I think to myself, that's awful presumptuous. We know. Glad Nicodemus thinks he knows. And Jesus, in the words of my fellow pastor, David Cassidy, puts it this way. He says, Jesus gives him a verbal smackdown, cutting Nicodemus down 
to size. Nicodemus has no idea that he's a dead man with no hope apart from the wind blowing into his life and lungs, that what he needs is resurrection. He needed to be born of the Spirit. This is the message of the first act of the book of Romans. You don't need self-improvement. You need resurrection. You don't need to be a better person. You need to be a new person. Again, as David Cassidy states, he says, everything that Nicodemus imagined would commend him to God was in fact a barrier. That it's not just our crazy wild sins and failures that create barriers between us and God, but our religious sins, our self-salvation projects, our misguided, mismanaged attempts to offer up to God a good life that will somehow lead to his accepting or rewarding us. Eternal life is not a reward for the morally perfect. It is a gift freely given to the broken. Now, I know what you're thinking out there. You're thinking, Jeff, why are you saying this to me? I know this. This is Christianity 101. Do you not think I get this? I attend a Presbyterian PCA church. I'm a Reformed Calvinist. I believe in total depravity. I don't commend myself to God. Hmm. Let me challenge you for a second. I want you to listen to yourself in the coming days. Listen to what gets you agitated, riled up, upset, driven by fear or anxiety, insecurity, defensive. And then have the courage, dare to ask yourself, why am I responding this way? Nobody sees it. But why am I feeling this way? What's going on in my inner world? Chances are you're not leaning on, resting in the free righteousness of Jesus Christ. If you were, there would be more beauty, compassionate orthodoxy, spirit renewal, and robust worship in your life. If you were, you'd be more loving, more trusting, more risk-taking, more bold, more courageous, more free and light in your life. But see, if this is truly how broken we are, and I believe we are, we need someone to scoop in and save the day, which is what verse 21 says when it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then verse 22, kind of explaining verse 21, says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, we say that this divine intervention is a revelation because here it says the righteousness of God is manifested, meaning it's being displayed. It's wide out. It's in the open. It's not a new thing because the text says the law and the prophets bore witness to it, but in salvation history it is being manifested now. Now we need to understand this. We looked at it in the context of the letter. We need to look at it in the context of the whole Bible. You need to understand what's going on in the context of the storyline of the Bible as a whole. See, in salvation history, this can be seen as kind of a dilemma. Not a dilemma to God necessarily, because everything's under the sovereignty of God, but it certainly appears to us in history as a dilemma facing God Because of the fact that the whole human race has turned away from God. 
So what does God do? Does he give up on humanity? Does he basically say, ah, oh, this whole creation of man in the image of God? It was all a gigantic blunder. And see, we need to understand in salvation history, what God did was he entered into something called a covenant relationship, first with Abraham, who was the father of Israel. And a covenant, by its very nature, contains stipulations, obligations, which if not met, carry within it consequences, blessings, and curses. This is part of the covenant relationship which God chose to be how we related to his creatures. So the righteousness of God, by definition, involves justice, involves God being faithful to God. God being faithful to how he established things. God being faithful to himself. So Israel was chosen by God to be the recipients of this covenant relationship, and as such, they were given a commission. But their history shows that they were unfaithful to that commission. They failed. So as one commentator put it, the bearers of the solution to the world's problem turned out to be themselves part of the problem. The great irony is that the covenant itself, God's binding agreement with Abraham and his family, was designed in the first place to deal with human wickedness and its consequences. The entire book of Genesis is framed in such a way as to say God called Abraham to undo the problem caused by the sin of Adam and so to get the original project back on track. So God calls and commissions Israel, makes a covenant with them to be the bearer to the world of God's good news a light to the nations, but what happens? They fail. They don't keep the covenant. And now God must be faithful. So what is he to do? And as a scholar put it, God doesn't scrap his original plan. God's righteousness is put into operation through the arrival of a representative, a substitute, a true Israelite who would offer God the faithful obedience which Israel should have offered but failed to do. Israel, called to be the messenger of God's saving plan, had corrupted the vocation into mere privilege and has failed to pass the message on. And now we see what Paul has in mind. Israel's representative, the Messiah Jesus, The Messiah represents his people so that, now listen to this, what is true of him is true of them and vice versa. Which means righteousness. What is true of Jesus? What is true of Jesus? Righteousness is provided to his people as a gift so God can be faithful to himself. Jesus fulfills righteousness. How did he do it? By on the cross receiving the curse of God's justice, the covenant, and in his life, earning by his faithfulness and his obedience the blessing of that covenant. And that righteousness is now manifested, is now revealed and given to all who believe as a gift. Which leads to our second point, the result of this divine intervention. 
Verse 21 gives us the salvation history, and verse 22 says this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness of God that is handed to you as a gift. Verses 23 and 24 say, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. New Testament scholar Thomas Schreiner puts it this way. He says this term, the righteousness of God, reaches back to Romans 1.17. Remember Romans 1.17? Where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. For in it, the it referring to the gospel, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed to all who believe. He's picking up on that thesis. This is why these verses are the heart of the epistle. Where Schreiner says the term is reaching back here to verse 17 of chapter 1 where the accent is on the saving righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And he says the saving righteousness is forensic. It is a righteousness that is a gift of God. God's righteousness is a revelation of his grace in history, demonstrating his gracious activity of justifying sinners. See, we receive by faith the righteousness of God that is in Christ. In other words, Christ becomes and is our righteousness. And the result, we are justified. We are declared a verdict by God. This is what Schreiner means when he says it's forensic. It doesn't mean that we somehow are made righteous and become righteous automatically in our behavior, but because of the justice of God. This is why you want the justice of God. You want It's our friend. Because of the justice of God, God, the just judge, makes a verdict about your life. If you are in Christ, his righteousness becomes yours, and you are declared right. Do we have a clue what this means? That you're declared perfect? That you're declared beautiful? That you're declared obedient? That you're declared faithful? That you're declared holy? That that's actually how God sees you? I mean, think about this. And we're going to be thinking about this for a long time. These are only the first four verses of this series, or of this part of the series. And I want this to be good news to you. I want this to actually lead to gospel beauty, spirit renewal, compassionate orthodoxy, and robust worship because we are free. See, think about what we said about salvation history. Jesus is our substitute. He represents his people. He becomes our substitute. So that, as Tim Keller always likes to say, he died the death that we should have died. And he lived the life that we should have lived. And so as a result, as I just said a few minutes ago, what is true of us becomes true of him, and what is true of him becomes true of us. Now stop there for a second. Think about this. This is utterly astounding. This is what will lead to the degree... Not just that we cognitively understand, but that we are gripped by this, that we appropriate this in our life. This is what leads to a changed life. See, think about this. We just said what is true of us becomes true of him. 
because he died the death we should have died. So what is true of us? We are sinners. We can't commend ourselves to God because the very best you have to commend is a filthy rag. But on the cross, Jesus died your death, was treated as you deserve to be treated. He took and became your sin. It was absorbed into his life so that what is true of you became true of Jesus. So God makes a declaration, a verdict that says you are forgiven. And talk about the law and the prophets bearing witness to this, like verse 22 says. This is the bearing witness of it that we read often in our confessions and in our assurances of pardon. Things like, for as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your sins from you. That's bearing witness to what Jesus accomplished in history. That's the psalmist saying, I don't know how this is going to come about, but look at what this is going to accomplish. I dare you, stretch out your arms as far as the east is from the west. That's how far your shame and your guilt and your inadequacy and what you feel bad about yourself, whether truthfully or falsely, has been removed from you. You bring stuff up in your life that God's saying, what in the world are you doing? It doesn't exist in my eyes. You've been, I've made a verdict. What do you think, God's a liar? Sorry, this preaches. I got to go for it. And then what's true of him becomes, see, you thought I preached before, look out now. Because what becomes true of him becomes true of us. How beautiful do you think Jesus is? How perfectly did he combine truth and love? How perfectly did he combine courage and strength? How perfectly did he combine compassion and justice? How perfectly did he, he was everything we weren't. That's what the Bible calls his righteousness. And what becomes true of him becomes God makes a verdict. And he says, this is true of my people. Which is why, again, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Which is why Zephaniah gets to say, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will quiet you with his love. He will take great delight with you. He will exult. He will, with ecstatic dancing, rejoice over you with loud singing. Why is that? Is that because he got in a good mood all of a sudden? No, that's because he declared you just as beautiful as Jesus is. Friends, to the degree, again, not that we just cognitively go, hmm, again, good Presbyterians. What a beautiful doctrine. Wow, maybe I'll read up, Rick encouraged me about Martin Luther. Maybe I'll read a biography of Martin Luther. Yes, do that. But by all means, would you let this capture your heart? Because that's what will change your life. The result of divine intervention. You want to talk about a bam kablooey? We're justified by his grace as a gift. Meaning God makes a verdict, a declaration that you were in the right. See, I'm convinced the number one thing people want in life. This is us as Christians. This is the world out there, no matter where they are in their state in life. The number one thing we are longing for, and this is why we look at for it in so many places, is to know that we're okay. Which is why we have to have it's why we have addictions. It's why there's materialism. It's why there's consumerism. It's why there's violence. It's why there's war. We're all trying to justify ourselves. 
Do you recognize how different we would be if we surrendered to God's verdict that we are justified? You could take a deep breath and quit trying to prove yourself. It doesn't matter. In a sense, I'm telling you, strive for, if you're a student, it doesn't matter if you get an A or a D. Yes, strive for excellence, but your A is not going to commend yourself to God. It doesn't matter if your kids or grandkids end up being super, super happy and more successful to you. It is not going to commend yourself to God. It doesn't matter if you have all your security and your 401k and in your CDs and all, and I'm not advocating to not save, but I'm saying if you think that will justify you and make you okay, you're wrong. It will not bring one ounce of extra freedom. What will bring you freedom is to embrace and surrender to the fact that you are justified by God. Now, what are the implications of this? I've already started speaking on this. One is how do we get this? How do we receive it? We receive it by faith. I love how one commentator put it. He says, God's righteousness has affected a new kind of being. That's what God wants. That's his church. We're a new kind of humanity whose faith is the signal that their li- listen carefully to these words, that their life is constructed not in the normal configuration of human existence. You know what the normal configuration of human existence is? It's dog-eat-dog, it's violence, it's will to power, it's selfishness, it's greed. But our lives, because of justification, is not constructed in the normal configuration of human existence, but from Christ. I used to love how Jack Miller always used to put it when he asked, so what must we do to receive this righteousness? What must we do to receive this verdict? And he would go on to illustrate it. He would say, it's like the earth drinking in the rain. And he would say, what does the earth do to receive the rain in a rainstorm? Absolutely nothing. It just soaks it in. And all of a sudden, look at what you have. You have plants and vegetation. You have beauty and renewal and compassionate orthodoxy and robust worship. One more implication before we close. Hearing this might make one think, wow, this is good news. I love this. This sounds like a great deal. I do nothing. Earth drinking in the rain. I'm good at doing nothing. In fact, I'll do it this afternoon on my sofa. I just have to believe, true, receive this gift of God's verdict of forgiveness and righteousness, true. Okay, great. And I'll receive that, and then I got a free ticket. Go out and live any way I want and run with it. And sometimes us preachers or church leaders, you know, we know that this could kind of be the implication, and, and of course, you know, now we start not applying the gospel, we, we get kind of fearful. We get kind of nervous. We think our teaching will lead to this kind of thought. There's even a technical term for it called antinomianism. We go, I can't let my preaching lead to antinomianism. That's not good. So what do we do? We water down the teaching. We water down the gospel. We make it sound less scandalous than it really is. In fact, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say to preachers, if you aren't accused in your preaching of teaching antinomianism, you're probably not teaching the gospel. 
But I want you to see something. I want you to make a connection with me. Look at the text and understand the implication. And trust the gospel. I want it to be a scandal in your life. I want you to say, does this mean, yeah, I can go out and sin and do whatever I want? And you want to know something? In a sense, the answer is yes. I'm not going to water it down. But then I want you to consider this text. Verse 24 says, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that's interesting. Do you see that connection? Justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Well, what is redemption? We need to understand what it means. And as one commentator puts it, it's a technical term for buying back a slave from the slave market or an object from a pawn shop. And what Paul has in mind here, and this is what he does when he justifies you, when he declares this verdict, Paul has in mind here a new exodus where Jesus is freeing us from being slaves to sin. He's buying us back from slavery at the price and the cost, the ransom of Jesus' own life. Which means here is the implication, we do not belong to ourselves. We are justified, we are, the verdict is made, we're declared right, we have a status of forgiven and right, so that we can be free to belong to God. His holiness is no longer a barrier, he can bring us in and we can be his. So you can see it's actually illogical and contradictory to say that we're justified so that we can do whatever we want. For we are justified through the purchasing, the buying back, the redemption he has redeemed you. Which, you know what that means in terms of an implication? It means don't you ever dare say you weren't ever wanted. Jesus Christ gave his life because God wanted you. You were worth that much to him. When he justifies you, he does so by purchasing your life. Talk about ultimate security and significance. Friends, if this doesn't change our lives, nothing else will. Are you glad we're going to be preaching on this for the next few months? I'm going to have fun with it. Let's pray. God, thank you that you've justified us as a gift, that you've declared us and made a verdict upon us that we are in the right what in the world can we say to that? That just, it seems too good to be true. And Lord, in some ways, I kind of hope people are thinking this seems too good to be true. Because that's what may lead us to see the scandal of it and be gripped by the reality of it. Lord, I pray in your name. Amen.